Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Hey, I'm Aaron. Um, it's good to be here. Thank you for the kind comments. Uh, I was told as a young man that beardliness is close to godliness and just uh, doing my best to live that out one day at a time. Um, if we ever need to lay hands on Kent, I'm available. We just, we can do this. But it is it's fun for me to be here, honestly. Uh, this particular community has a really special place in my heart. And I know Kent shared a little bit uh, about getting to meet one another, but uh, I'll let you in on a little secret for somebody who's been in, in pastoral ministry for most of the last 20 years. Pastors can be weird. Uh, we, we can be a really weird, unhealthy bunch. Um, we can be very territorial, uh, very insecure. Um, and so being in the world of church planting, when you move into a community and you labor towards starting a new church, uh, the, the, the reviews can be mixed. Um, even in the South, where we're pretty agreeable with one another, and people be like, oh, welcome to the community, brother. You know, uh, most of the time, there, there's, you get some flack. You do. Uh, and, and not all churches and pastors are real pumped about you being there. Dirty little secret. Um, and so when you come across... Uh, pastors who really from day one choose to be in your corner and to support what you're doing and to help champion what you're doing. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And, you know, getting to meet Kent and Jeff um, from the get-go, they kind of just put their arms around us and said, hey, how can we serve this this community that is being formed and the vision that God's put in you? And uh, so, man, it's true. For the last, we've been here, what, a year and a half plus, got to be? And, and up until very, very recently, we, we just moved into the, the sanctuary, but they haven't charged us a dime uh, for rent, which is a big deal, especially with COVID and everything shutting down and a lot of churches are struggling. They have been just such a, such a blessing. So I, I say all that because he really means what he just says, <laughs> what he just said. And you guys are, are very blessed to have the staff and leadership that you do. And to get to come and talk to you about Jesus is one of my favorite things to talk about. So, so let's do that. So uh, I know you've been journeying through Matthew, uh, one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible. I love the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and suffice to say, up until this point, Jesus is walking around like a boss, uh, basically. right? He is, he is proclaiming the kingdom of God, uh, and he is showing everybody, I'm, I'm king. right? And so we, we watch him say these things and then do these things and putting on display the goodness of God. He speaks to death and it dies and he raises people from the dead, right? He's healing the sick. The lame are walking. Good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Uh, freedom for the captives. Jesus is doing all these things. And then we hit this bump in, in, in chapter 11 and we find that Jesus is, he's ticked off. Uh, he's pretty angry. And so I'm going to reread just a, a portion of what was just read. And this is what we find, okay, uh, beginning verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man, me, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say 
Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. And now Jesus is, he's going to go off a little bit. He's got some things to say to his audience. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed and you had been performed in Tyre or Sidon, uh, I think I just butchered that. We were talking about how to pronounce that, but I think I just missed it, but something like that. Uh, woe to you. Um, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you, it will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Right, and so I think we've got to ask a question. Um, what's going on here? Why in the world is Jesus so angry in this moment, right? We, we watch him move, and one of the things I love about Jesus is he's a little bit unpredictable, right? He, he enters into moments and spaces and relationships and opportunities uh, not always in the same way, right? It, it seems like we talk about the Spirit of God kind of blows where it will, and Jesus, we never know exactly how he's going to respond, and sometimes his message is full of so much grace and so much mercy, but in this moment, he is really, really angry in these towns where he's been performing these miracles. And we, I think we have to ask, why, why is that? And, and I think to understand that, we have to dig in a little bit to the first century and the world in which Jesus and his audience uh, grew up in, right? We have to remember, first of all, that Jesus is Jewish, right? And so when we read the Gospels, when we read Jesus, like, this should really influence the way that we read and understand him. Like, he was, he, he, he grew up a young Jewish boy with Jewish peers, right? Singing Jewish songs, hearing Jewish stories, worshiping uh, the Jewish God, right? The, the, we have to understand that part of his story and his peers' story is, as the Jewish people, right, they were, they were an oppressed people, uh, over and over again, it seems one of the commonalities of the Jewish people is there was always some bigger, badder empire that kind of had the boot on the neck of, of God's people, right? And so at this particular moment, uh, the biggest, baddest empire that the world has ever known up until this time has moved in and taken over, right? The Roman Empire for about 70 years. So all of Jesus' life, uh, for all of his audience's life, there's this Rome, they live in a militarized zone, right? There is, there is a military occupation on their land, right? And this is, the land is precious to you as a Jewish person, right? All this, you grew up hearing the songs and learning the stories, studying the prophets, right? Listening to the story of, of God calling a people to himself and, and working towards restoring what had been broken by the fall and by sin. And then moves in this, this empire that could care less about your Jewish heritage, they don't care about your Jewish God, your stories, your faith, your culture, and they're taking over. In fact, you can't even go out on the, on the lake to fish without seeing, you know, the Roman troops making their rounds. There's been new villages that have popped up that are populated almost entirely by former Roman soldiers. They come from other nations, and they don't care about your people and your heritage and your story. So there's always like this, this kind of lingering fear as this oppressed, marginal people that your heritage and your faith is going to be squashed, right? At best, uh, maybe Rome ends up just swallowing you up, and you just kind of become inundated with all things Roman culture, and you lose that. At worst, you, by force and military might, you get squashed as a people, right? And so one of the ways that the Jewish people 
kind of pushed back against this, one of the only things they could do is they took the education of their kids really seriously, right? And they believed if we invest in the next generation and, and, and disciple them and teach them uh, our story and our ways and about God, um, regardless of what military occupation is happening at the, at the time, our faith and our culture and our story will, will live on, right? And so in this kind of thing, they would start to educate you really young. So if you grew up Jewish, like Jesus and his peers and his audience did, uh, when you turned six, uh, you'd be invited into the, 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 to, to study under a rabbi uh, as a kid. In fact, there's a, there's a quote, kind of shares a little bit of just the heartbeat and thinking behind this. Uh, it was intense, I'll tell you that. It was intense. One rabbi said this, he said, do not accept a student before the age of six, but if he's six years old, accept him and stuff him with the Torah like an ox. And that was kind of their mentality. In fact, you would, be, you would begin uh, at age six, and the first order of business, like on that first day, if you can just imagine this, you'd be with your, your friends and your neighbors, maybe some kids from a nearby village. You'd sit underneath that rabbi, and they'd give you a little bit of honey. Uh, apparently, kids loved sugar back then, just like my kids love sugar now. Um, and they'd give you honey, and they would talk about how the Word of God is like honey to the lips. Right? And that rabbi would sing and dance, begin to proclaim uh, God's word. And because it was an oral tradition, you know, typically a village, a large village, might have one copy of, of the Torah. Uh, in smaller villages, they might group together, and between several villages, you'd have one copy. So it's an oral tradition, right? So they would, you'd sing the scriptures, and you'd write the scriptures, and you'd speak the scriptures, and they would just immerse these kids in this. And from age 6 to 10, the first order of business is you would memorize, as a Jewish kid, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, uh, which is pretty incredible, right? But that's how serious they, they, they took this. And if you can just imagine these kids, I, I love just thinking about Jesus in this moment as a young boy, right? Hearing this, watching the rabbis sing and dance. Rabbis were kind of these really eccentric, kind of quirky characters and really gifted teachers. And just seeing like Jesus is just eyes big and his heart beating fast and hearing the heart of his heavenly father being spoken aloud. Now when kids turn like 11 or so, for most of them, uh, that was the end of their education, right? They would go back to, to their homes. Uh, they would learn the family craft, right? Fishing, uh, carpentry, farming, and, and that, was, that was really it for them. Um, and they would prepare for, for marriage, right? But, but all of this, I say all this to say, right, when Jesus is traveling and speaking these things, I think it's important for us to understand, like, this audience is very, very familiar with the Old Testament, right? They know the story of God as it's told in the Pentateuch. Like, they grew up on these stories and these songs and the Psalms. Like, they know about, about God calling to himself a people through Abraham and God's intentions of reestablishing what was broken by sin, by fixing what has been broken by sin, the kingdom of God. And then Jesus comes, right? And so they are familiar with this expectation. In fact, for generations, they have longed for this promised Messiah who would come and somehow in some way begin to inaugurate God putting things back together. They know, right? And this generation got to live through John the Baptist, who were told was the greatest of all the prophets up until this time. Right, to make straight the way for the Lord, who came checking all of the prophetic boxes. If you were a Jewish kid growing up and you thought of an Old Testament prophet, you were thinking of a guy like John the Baptist, right? Kind of a weirdo with a beardo in the desert, living a very kind of marginal 
life out there in the woods or in the desert, eating strange things, wearing strange things, um, and then literally a voice calling out in the wilderness. Like that was John the Baptist. To hear the message, you would have to go out and hear him and you could be baptized, right? For a Jewish kid, a Jewish people, like that is your quintessential prophet type. Then you have Jesus who comes as a very atypical prophet type, right? Not on the margins of society, but right in the heart of society, right? Rather than needing to go to the desert to hear, like Jesus met people right in the middle of their spiritual desert, right? Dining and, and whining with, with people you just didn't associate with a priest or a rabbi, both of them coming, and ironically, tragically, the religious people reject both of them for religious reasons, Right, they look at what John the Baptist is doing, they, they just dismiss him and say, oh, yeah, that's not hot, fiery, godlike passion. The dude has a demon. Right, so we, didn't need to, we don't need to listen to that. Right, Jesus, who is this guy? Right, he's eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. He's a glutton. He's a drunk. And, and both of them reject, are rejected by the religious community, by God's people. And I think for us, this is kind of where the rubber, I think, meets the road uh, for us. I, I think, I mean, honestly, the question that comes to mind is, how is, it, how is it not only possible but common for very religious people to completely miss the heart of God? Like, I, I bet if we shared stories, like, we've all got stories. Like, some of us have wounds and scars uh, to this very point. Why? Why is it not only possible but common for religious people who are steeped in religious knowledge, uh, who are engaged in religious duty, who attend religious services in spaces like this, on mornings like this, to be so disconnected from what God's up to in the world and so ungodly? Which makes me wonder, what if... Uh, what if Jesus is talking about us in this passage? There's a, there's a quote uh, by a guy named Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest, that has just been rattling kind of in my, my heart mind. It's like one of those things you hear and you see, but then you can't really unsee it. Um, and he, he posed this. I heard it, read it somewhere along the way, and it just has stuck. And he says this, says, religion is one of the safest places to hide from God. Like, that one will mess you up if you sit on it long enough. Religion is one of the safest places to hide from God. You know, I, I don't know a whole lot, but in being kind of the pastoral ministry world for most last 20 years, I will say this is absolutely true. <laughs> right, there's something, it seems, about religion about religious spaces and religious rhythms and even religious language that seems to, I mean, it lends itself to a certain casualness as it pertains to the divine, right? Like, even just think about what we're doing here. <laughs> like, we are gathered in this space, united many of us uh, in a faith or maybe a curiosity about God, but we're gathering in the name of the holy divine other <laughs> to explore, to sing, many of us to, to worship and to follow the one who is who's bigger and greater, if we're all honest, bigger and greater than we could ever possibly know. I mean, we're just scratching the surface 
on a morning like this. But it is a, a really big deal. The one who spoke into existence everything that we know uh, about reality. And yet, if we're not careful, right, we become so, so passively comfortable in a space like this, doing things like this, talking about things like this, singing songs like this, that I think we miss, we can miss the enormity and the beauty and the mystery and the power of what we're being invited into and what we're actually doing in this moment, like together. You know, I, I remember sitting with, and, and here's one of the really ironic things about this, is it seems like irreligious people intrinsically get this. I remember sitting with one of my neighbors who's not a, not a believer, um, he's an atheist, uh, great dude, and we were, we were hanging out, and I was at a point in my life where I was kind of prepping to go to seminary, um, the one thing I said I would never do, <laughs> and the one thing for years I told people, yeah, don't go do that. Um, it's not necessary. Uh, I still tell most people that, and then God was like, yeah, you're right, most people don't need to go, but you do. Um, <laughs> so not happy about that. Um, but I remember talking to him, you know, and I was like, I'm, I'm looking at this school and these programs and stuff, and he's like, well, what do you think you're going to do? And I said, well, kind of the industry standard uh, is what they call a master's of divinity, <laughs> and he just burst out laughing. He's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, you really think for three, like three years of studying, like you're going to master the divine, you know? And it stuck with me. Honestly, in that moment, I just made a commitment to myself. I'm never going to get a master's of divinity. Um, you know, but, but it's just like indicative of just how casual we can become in talking about very holy, sacred things. Um, I mean, have you ever even noticed, it's just interesting to me, have you ever noticed that Jesus' harshest words were often not to unbelievers. Right? It was always to religious people. Right? When you read the Gospels, like, it's like the, the biggest enemies to the message and movement of Jesus were not conservatives or liberals or the LGBT community. Like They were religious people who are very familiar with the Scriptures and the God of the Old Testament. Right, and, and as somebody in ministry, just total disclosure, um, it's kind of, I'm a guest, so I kind of feel like I can just say whatever and can't, I'll have to fix it, you know, because I'm not here next week. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, if I'm completely honest, you know, religious people were the biggest obstacle to what God was wanting to do in the world in that moment. And if I'm being completely honest, I think that is still the case. Like in my experience, the hardest people to disciple in the world are those who have logged the most time in church spaces. Like there's almost like, in a, like, in, like a, a math equation somewhere where it's like the more hours spent sitting in a seat like that, the harder it is to change somebody's thoughts about reality. Right, the, mo the more almost like postured we are against what God might want to do because we're so convinced of what we think we already know. You know, I, and it makes me wonder whether sometimes, if we're not careful, like one of the most dangerous places to be is maybe in a space like this. Because my neighbors, who I absolutely love, but who will tell you, be the first to tell you that they don't believe anything we're talking about this morning. Like they, when it comes to this kind of conversation, like they know that they don't know. But we think we do. Which makes, which makes it very hard to hear. 
right? It postures us in such a way to really settle into almost this like laissez-faire, take-it-or-leave-it kind of a faith where it's like I'm comfortable with what I already know and where I'm at. And I almost wonder like if Jesus walked in in a morning like this, like would we even have the stomach to hear what he has to say? Or would we just outright dismiss him before he opens his mouth because we honestly don't want to hear it? Right, this is where Jesus' audience is, like in this moment. Uh, they don't want to hear it. Like God is doing something extraordinary in the world, and they're just kind of comfortable with where they're at. You know, it's fascinating talking to people that are different places on kind of the faith or lack of faith spectrum. And it's almost like most of them seem to intuitively understand some things that, that guys like Kent and I have to work really hard uh, to help people hear and understand. Like, I, I remember uh, when we planted the last church that we planted in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, over a decade ago. Uh, I was, we didn't have a sugar daddy church or friends like Kent. <laughs> so, I, I was working at Jimmy John's uh, in downtown Lincoln, um, delivering sandwiches freaky fast for Jesus, um, trying to put food on the table, taking home a lot of day-old bread for a dollar. Uh, and my manager, uh, was a guy named Brian, and Brian was an atheist. And on the spectrum of atheists, you have everything, you know, from, uh, you know, they're just kind of level about things. They don't really have a past or a story or wounds. They just, it just doesn't add up, right? They just can't, can't understand why you believe what you believe. But then you have people on the other side of the spectrum, it's like there's deep hurt there that is part of their journey. And that was Brian. Uh, and so Brian was, uh, he wanted to fight. Like when he found out that we were starting a church, things got real at Jimmy John's. Um, he wanted to fight all the time, you know what I mean? Like, and, and kind of corner me, and, and, and uh, I remember, I don't know if you guys have this. I, I haven't noticed this here. I'm sure it exists, but we had these, these kind of, these guys downtown Lincoln with a giant cross and a box that they stepped up on, you know, that kind of type, uh, who just are, they're just painful, just painful to be associated with. Uh, a lot of hate speech in the name of Jesus coming out of their mouths. And I just remember Brian be like, so is it, that's you, huh? Huh, Loy? You believe this stuff? Like, that, he's on your team, right? Um, congratulations for being an idiot was kind of his, his posture. You know, and eventually I was just like, dude, we can't do this <laughs> every time I work. Uh, let's get breakfast. And he's like, all right. So we got breakfast, and, uh, and I got to hear some of his story. And, and, we, and we had a great time. And, and one breakfast turned into two, turned into three, turned into many, many breakfasts. And, you know, Brian began to open up and, and invited me to, to play on his sand volleyball team. Um, lo and behold, I went and started playing on the sand volleyball team, and they were all atheists. There's five atheists and a pastor. Um, only God can cook that one up. And my favorite was, like, on nights when we had a guest playing on our team and the introductions were going around, you know. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is, uh, this is Brittany. She's a bartender downtown. This is Jason. He owns a liquor distribution company in town. Uh, this is Caroline. She sells sex toys for a living. And this is Pastor Aaron. Welcome to the team. Yeah, like, yeah it's, it's real. <laughs> but, you know, so we started kind of sharing stuff, Brian and I. And, and he would send me some, you know, atheist scholars that had shaped his thinking. And I would send him some, some Jesus content for us to dialogue with. And, and then he said, you know, I'm kind of interested in Jesus. He's like, I don't I don't buy anything you're smoking, um, but, but Jesus is interesting to me. Uh, do you think I could get a Bible, you know? And I was like, yeah, I can get you a Bible. And, and so we started, like, walking through the Scriptures together. And, you know, and, and it was just amazing watching, watching Brian begin to open up. And, and eventually he actually came to our, our church 
and it's clear that he had, is a, is a church very much like this, very young, uh, pretty hip, and he walked in in a full suit. Because <laughs> he didn't go to church, he didn't know better, you know, so he still got like a sore thumb. Um, but he started talk, calling himself like our, our resident atheist. And I would invite him, we would do like three, four weeks of focused fasting and prayer every year, and we invite people kind of all over the faith spectrum. You know, it's like, just journey with us. Like, scientifically, prayer, meditation is good for you, you know, like, Best case scenario, nothing happens. God doesn't speak to you. It reaffirms everything you already don't believe. Worst case scenario, he shows up and ruins your life forever. But <laughs> people would take us up like on this invitation. And, and Brian was one of those. And he began to fast and he began to pray. And we, I remember we were reading through the book of Luke. And, and Brian had a moment. Um, he had a vision, which he wouldn't use that language. But, you know, he said, I had a moment last week where... I was thinking, you know, I think I could be a pretty good Christian. And he had already told me, you know, he's like, I'm basically a better Christian than all the Christians I know. He's like, I'm kind, I love people. I said, you're humble. Um, <laughs> and, and he said, but then I had this picture in my head, and I saw Jesus, like, on the cross, and there was an empty cross next to him. And he said, are you ready for this? Because this one's for you. Which is pretty intense. Um, and he said, I, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. And, and I, I love that. I would love to tell you, you know, Brian has since committed his life to Jesus, and he's passionately run after the Lord. That's not true. Uh, please pray with me. I love the man, and I believe that it's, that's going to happen at some point. But, but what I, I think is so fascinating is Brian's very staunch, well-versed atheist. He, all, he intrinsically knew that if he was going to follow after Jesus, that there would be a cost. Like, he just understood that if I follow after this Jesus, it's going to change everything. And I'm going to have to begin to realign my life in, in light of this. And in my experience, people at other, in other systems of belief or lack thereof, they, they know this. Um, they're not hard to disciple. <laughs> they're actually, you know what I mean? Like, honestly, it's, it's a joy. Like, they, from the get-go in making that decision, like, they... They just get it. All right, what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? And with church people, it's like, yeah, I'm already there. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know how to disciple you. <laughs> you know, like, I really, I'm, I'm stuck. We're stuck here. Um, you know, but it's interesting. It's like, you know, you get to have some cool experiences. We've got some cool experiences along the way. Like, I've got to build churches with Buddhists and pray with practicing Wiccans and study Jesus with staunch atheists. I've seen lifelong Jews come to recognize and know Jesus as the Messiah. Like, beautiful, powerful stuff. Um, people that we wouldn't normally associate, like, with church, um, but who had a transformational encounter with the living Christ. But then when we moved to the South a few years ago, like, I've experienced something like I've never experienced before. You know, like, we've done, most of our ministry has been in, in Lincoln and Minneapolis and L.A., and then we moved down here. When we lived in L.A., we were there for two years. I didn't meet a single professing believer. Not one. That wasn't a part of our church already. And then I moved down here, and I started meeting people, and everybody is self-identifying as a Christian. <laughs> you know, we're meeting neighbors and parents, gymnast parents and people at the gym. And it's like, especially when they find out you're in ministry, they start giving you their spiritual resume. You know, you're like, yeah, my great uncle is a Methodist pastor. Cool, that's awesome. I don't, I don't have a dog in this fight. <laughs> you know, like, that's great. Right? But then you get to like hear people's stories and, and have them over and dig into their lives and you realize like 
I don't know that that Jesus thing like is having any influence on the decisions you're making Monday through Saturday. Like I just don't see it. Um, there's no discernible difference whatsoever. And so like I share all this because I think Jesus' words are very, very relevant, relevant and, and poignant I think for us because I've never been a part of a culture where there's almost like this collective religious memory that still exists. And in certain circles, there are certain almost like a pressure to self-identify as Christian, or there's benefits, business or otherwise, to say that you're a Christian. And, and, when, and at some point, the word stops meaning something. And we can start to believe lies without even realizing we're doing it. And, and there might have been a time for that where that worked, but it seems to me in this cultural moment, and COVID was a big part of it, uh, culture is calling our bluff on that one real fast. Right, I'm a millennial, technically. I'm an old millennial, increasingly gray. Um, you know, but I've watched in my lifetime just as my generation has just left. Um, you know, and, and recent stats, I mean, you guys are such a young community, which is such a gift, by the way. It's such a rare, rare thing. I know you're praying for more gray hair, and I'll join you in that. But, you know, Gen Z, like, the numbers out currently is, like, if, if we change nothing in the church world, we can expect just one in ten to become followers of Jesus. Right, from 2016 to 2020, 20% of the U.S. church walked away. It's like 8 million people just in those four years alone. I was just talking to a denominational leader the other day who oversees 1,000 churches down in this area of the country, and they're expecting a third of those churches to close their doors over the next 12 months. Right, the pretend, we're being called out on the pretending. Right? Most of the stories I'm connected to of people who have walked away from faith actually has very little to do with this Jesus and a whole lot to do with us. And what they've experienced in Jesus' church is people who simply do not act like Jesus, right? People who demonize those that they disagree with, who are overly divisively political, homophobic, transphobic, uh, condescending, angry, hateful people in the name of God, and they just don't have a stomach for it. And who can blame them, right? I mean, the heartbreaking thing about those numbers is not just that people left, it's that so many people had good reason to. Right? And so I think we are facing like a moment of reckoning uh, in the church. And religion simply isn't going to, to cut it. And it's, it's never what we were invited into. Like at some point, uh, Alan Hirsch I'll quote Alan Hirsch, and I apologize for the big words, but it's kind of how Alan rolls. But he said this. He said, you know, we have collapsed our Christology into soteriology. Uh, Jesus is our Savior, but he's no longer our Lord. Right at some point in religion, we're big on symbols in religion. I'm not against them, but at some point, Jesus became a symbol and no longer our model for living and loving. Right, at some point, like, we settled for being fans. Like, Jesus, yeah. We're, you're awesome, you're great, we'll sing songs to you, we'll worship him, but no longer follow in his, in his way. Right, he's Savior, uh, but no longer Lord. Right, we, we, we settled for admiration uh, instead of discipleship in, in the way of Jesus. We settled for being Jesus' fans uh, instead of followers. Right? And I think what we have to recapture, and one of the reasons Jesus is so mad in this moment, is that Jesus, he didn't just come to die. Like, he also came to show us how to live. Right? What it looks like to be fully human. 
right, what the kingdom looks like with skin on. Right, his invitation throughout the Gospels was never simply prayer, uh, pray a prayer and go on your way. It was lahakarai, come follow me. Right, for those who would follow after, you know, in the Jewish, I'm going to have to cut this a little bit short, um, getting a little wordy. You know, but in, in, in Jesus' culture, if you had the ability and, and the, the know-how to kind of progress through the educational system, eventually, after memorizing the entire Old Testament, if you were given permission, you could approach a rabbi and ask to be one of his Talmudim, ask to be one of the disciples, and he would grill you. It's a pretty intense interview process. He wanted to know that you knew the Scriptures, and not only that you knew the Scriptures, you knew how to think, how to ask questions, how to walk around it, the Scriptures, how to apply them to the stuff of everyday life. And if he thought you were worthy, you would hear those precious words, come follow me, if. And oftentimes along the way, at some point, he would, he would turn you back. But if you were invited to follow after him, what you would do as a disciple is you would begin to physically mimic everything that he would do. Right? You would watch the way that he walked. You would watch the way that he prayed. You would listen to the, the blessings that he would pronounce. You'd watch the way that he studied the scriptures and applied them to everyday life, and you would literally follow on his heels and mimic his every move. Right? And so if the rabbi was walking and he, saw, he picked up a blade of grass and put it in his mouth, you as a Talmudim, as a disciple, would do the exact same thing. You would bend over, pick up a blade of grass, and put it in your mouth. Right? If, the, if the rabbi went over and picked a fig and smelled it and took a bite, you would go over, take a fig, smell it, and take a bite. Everything that the rabbi did, your goal was to follow after him. And the rabbi would choose you specifically what the rabbi was looking for was somebody who could carry on their legacy, right? Somebody who could carry on what they call uh, that, that uh, rabbi's yoke, which was their interpretation and application of the scriptures, which is part of the reason that rabbis were so picky. They were looking for somebody who could become just like them, right? And so this gives all kinds of added meaning when we talk about our relationship to Rabbi Jesus and what we're being invited into, right, out of this came this, this blessing, this ancient blessing. And it was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Right? May you follow so closely on his heels that all the stuff of life gets kicked up and covered all over your person. Right? The whole goal was to become just like him. This is why we have verses like in six, uh, Luke 6.40 that says, the student or disciple is not above their teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher, right? This was the, the whole goal, right? And so when we read Jesus, we got to know and return always to this fact, like, he's, he's not inviting our applause, right? The invitation is not to be an admirer, uh, to amass more theolo- theological knowledge, to show up on a Sunday like this weekly and check it off the box, right? It is an invitation like my, my buddy Brian just seemed to intrinsically know it is an invitation to reorient our lives uh, entirely. You know, there's only, uh, what are we looking at time-wise? 11, 26, okay, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. You know, there's only two rabbis ever that we have, his, we, we have record of who went and actually invited disciples to follow after them. Uh, the first was Hillel, uh, who said this. He said, 
God can make a disciple out of anyone. And the second uh, is Jesus. You know, and in those moments where his disciples are struggling with, with doubt, wondering, do I really have the, <laughs> what it takes, right, who would say things like this in John 15, you need to remember something, right? You did not choose me, uh, but I chose you. And one of the things I love about Jesus, oh, I love this about Jesus, is he seemed to take special delight in inviting the most unlikely of people. Right? I wonder, even, even in reading our, our passage, it's as he's squaring off with good religious boys and girls and calling them out, uh, maybe it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus was always going to the margins to invite people that we probably wouldn't normally associate with religion. Right? He would go and invite people like fishermen and tax collectors. Women, it's a big deal. Right, this particular time was a very patriarchal society. Like, women were often on the, the value chain just above cattle. Like, they, couldn't even, they couldn't even testify in court because their word was not deemed reliable because they were women. Right, women like Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna were invited to be a part of his Talmudim, to follow after him, to be a part of his ministry. Women bankrolled his ministry. How radical is that? I love it. The woman at the well, one of my favorite passages. Right? She's the wrong gender. <laughs> she's the wrong race. Uh, she's been in a handful of marriages. Now she's living with somebody else. And Jesus immediately <laughs> not only seeks her out to, to love her in that moment, but she immediately becomes a part of his ministry in that moment. Right? Young and old, male, female. Like Jesus was, he was a radical. You know, and, and you got to know this rabbi Jesus, he's still alive. And he's still calling disciples to himself. And, you know, he said some really strange things about his yoke as a rabbi. This is what we read in Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rabbis didn't talk like that. Right? Rabbis, rabbis talk more like, come to me, you who are exceptional. Right? You who are the A-plus students. You who can work your way around the word. You can perform at an optimal level. When called upon, you come to me. And Jesus steps in. You know, one of the burdens, one of the burdens in this moment for, for the Jewish people who were trying to be faithful is nobody really know like whose yoke was right. Right? You had all these different interpretations. You had traditions in the Jewish system where people were their focus was all about dotting the right I's, crossing the right T's, as many of you as I'm sure you know, like added all kinds of rules in, in trying to curb people's faithfulness to it, and so much so that, man, if you were a woman, you couldn't participate to a certain level. If you were poor, you certainly couldn't participate at a certain level. And then the Son of God shows up, God in the flesh, the Messiah, and what are his words? Will you breathe? <laughs> Come to me. You will not find more weight, more shame, more of this, all of this stuff that's sucking the life out of you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Right, yoke yourself to me and you'll find rest for your souls. I mean, what kind of grace is this? What kind of rabbi is this? Uh, a rabbi worth following. 
I would certainly suggest. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it's incredible. So, I've got to wrap up. Um, I would say this. Uh, there are a lot of things that pass for Christian these days. Uh, we've got Christian radio, Christian colleges, uh, Christian books, Christian conferences, Christian churches, Christian people. Uh, I think for us, if I could encourage us and challenge us in, in any way, is I think our litmus test should be, if it does not look or feel or taste or smell or sound like Jesus, it's not Christian. We don't get to call it Christian. It's something else. It might be very religious, uh, but those two things are not one and the same. Jesus never invited us to be Christian in that sense of the word, but instead to be disciples. And who still calls, Lahakarai, come follow me. Let me pray for you. And we'll worship, right? Yeah, let's do that. Lord God, we, we do not enter into this space casually. We acknowledge that we are in the presence of you, uh, the all-powerful, all-holy, glorious one. Lord, we thank you that we got to see in Jesus. We get to see even now as we dig into the gospel of Matthew, your person and your goodness put on display. I thank you for the people in my life, uh, some of them who do not know you yet, who have taught me so much about what it means to follow after you, who challenged me to never settle into passive casualness as it relates to following after my rabbi. And Lord, I ask that even now, for everybody in this room, regardless of where they are currently in this moment, spiritually with you, that they would hear your words. Lahakarai, come follow me. I thank you that that is an invitation for the people in our lives that we would never guess would walk through the doors of a church like this. People we might never guess would be the ones to bend the knee and speak the name and follow after you, Jesus. But they too are invited. And I thank you for the hope for recovering Pharisees like myself that the invitation stands. So Lord, we come before you now as your, as your people, as friends, as a faith community, and lift up your name. Pray all these things in your great name and all God's people said. Amen.